0: Welcome back to the South Harbor Church podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, as we continue our year-long study from the Gospel of Matthew, we take a look at how the kingdom of heaven is like soil and seeds. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. have a Bible.
1: We're gonna do some studying today. If you have a Bible. Yes. That makes my heart very happy. Uh, Matthew chapter 13. Um, We are jumping back into Matthew 13. We're actually slowing. We've been going slow through the gospel of Matthew. Um, We're spending a year in Matthew, but we're slowing even more down for Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13 is... Uh, a series of parables, short stories that Jesus told, um, all about one subject. So all of the parables, uh, there are seven parables in Matthew 13. All of the parables are about one subject, and that subject means a lot to Jesus. It was his main sermon, um, In the the sermon was the kingdom of heaven, or uh, as the other gospels uh, tell the same stories, the kingdom of God. Uh, And so if you missed last week, um, last week we set the stage, I tried my best to lay a foundation for uh, the kingdom of heaven, um, if you missed last week, uh, I'll do my best to kind of catch you all up. Uh, in fact, um, i uh, if you were here, it may still be fuzzy. I uh, had... I had totally underestimated the amount of time that I was, or overestimated uh, the amount of time that I had, and so um, I think I got through like half of the content, which means I'm just going to try to jam that into this week, and when I don't get through that, we'll jam that into the next week, um, but uh, I talked really fast, and so if you're like, I don't remember what we talked about, that's my fault. I, uh, I talked, spoke really fast, and, um, and I, I, hate, I kind of am embarrassed to even go back here, but I put my foot in my mouth last week in maybe the worst way that I've done uh, since being here. I've put my foot, I mean, at least from the stage. Uh, And so even if you were here, it's maybe a little fuzzy because um, I'm not going to repeat all the things. Now some of you are like, now I want to hear what he said. Um, Yeah, Now you'll listen to the podcast. Uh, But... (laughs) Uh, yeah, uh, there was like this moment where I could like see the words leaving my mouth, and I'm like, "That's not that's that's not what I meant. That's not how." It's... And then as I'm trying to like do damage control in the moment, like I'm trying to speak the words back in, but that's not that all I'm doing is pushing the words out. And uh, and so there was a moment last week where my glasses fogged up. I was so embarrassed. I had to pull them down here because I like if you. So this is a new thing since I've been wearing glasses. When you're embarrassed, your glass like your face like when like your face gets blushed, uh, actually your glasses fog up. I learned, and uh, and so um, so I, I kind of did two things I hate doing. Uh, and the reason it was so embarrassing was because I like it was uh, I referenced a, per- a a couple of friends from the church, and it, anyway, it was it was not worth repeating. Um, b- but uh, I also had this moment where I realized, and this is one of the things that. Um, it's it's been a vow to myself and uh, to you all as a church that I, I think it's really important for a pastor to be in the moment, like present in the moment when you're preaching. Uh, I actually, for a while, I was writing in my margin on my notes, wake up. Like, remember, God's present in this. Don't just be looking at your notes. Don't just, and, uh, and there's a moment, and maybe you've, maybe you've had this moment um, where, uh, like, you say something you didn't mean to say, or something happens, and uh, you're now on, like, autopilot. You're, like, I'm, I'm teaching about the kingdom of God last week, and in my head, I'm crafting my apology email. Like, so I, I'm, like, I'm, I, like I'm, I'm teaching and I'm talking and I'm kind of saying the things that I'd planned to say, um, but, uh, but, like, I'm not really present because, I'm, like, I'm actually also, like, why would you say that? What are you thinking? Uh, and so these two thoughts are going on at the same time, and, um, and that's not fair. Like, I owe you an apology for that. That's never fair. Like, I... Uh, I um. And it's especially not fair because I don't know that there's a subject that matters more to Jesus and, uh, and a subject that I'm passionate about than the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew refers to it. Uh, this is his main sermon. So like it's really important that we we actually uh, sit with this and let it absorb. And what, Jesus, what are you trying to say in all of this? Um, and so uh, with that, we'll, we'll do our best this morning. I don't know why I rehashed all that, but um, if... In the in the rare event that you think I'm smarter than I am, now you know. Now you know. Uh, anyway, we're gonna look this morning at the first parable. So last week we tried to lay the stage for the kingdom of God. Um, we're gonna spend four weeks on the kingdom. This this idea of the kingdom that Jesus preaches. Uh, especially in our last week, we'll try to pull all of the pieces together, but we're still building our case. And uh, I wanna spend a little bit of time this morning uh, thinking about parables and what is this parable Jesus is telling? How do the parables work? Uh, My disclaimer again this morning is I'm gonna take you back into the weeds. Some of you have told me that you like going in the weeds, which is good, but I'm gonna take you back into the weeds. We gotta do some work. Um, In fact, Jesus tells us that in the story we're going to look at, Jesus actually tells us that this one's going to take a little bit of work to understand. So we're going to do a little bit of work. Um, but also, I recognize as I was uh, working on this a few months ago, kind of putting down the series, uh, I don't know that I've ever actually taught the parable of the sower. It's a parable I use all the time in devotions because I think it's a really powerful parable. Um, in Israel, we, uh, we we started every day with this parable. But I don't know that I've ever taught the parable of the sower because um, there's like... The, the straightforward teaching of the parable that some of you, if you grew up in or around the church, you probably have heard, if not once, a thousand times. But then there's all this really fascinating stuff that will take some time to unpack if we go there. And I've always wrestled with, okay, if we're going to do this like all the way, it's going to take some time, and I don't know like how to do that work. And so um, we're going to go after it. The beauty of of sitting in the Gospel of Matthew is it's, it kind of forces us to go slow and look at the passages that um, I've not preached before when when left to my own choice. Uh, and so Matthew chapter thirteen, let's read the parable. We'll kind of we'll kind of break it periodically um, to kind of explain what's going on, and then um, I want to think together about what is Jesus doing here. And again, we're building a cathedral. Remember that metaphor. We're building the cathedral. We're we're laying a foundation for the things that are to come. Um, But Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and he sat in it. While all the people stood on the shore. Okay, let's pause here. Um, Let me show you a picture. Uh, This is known as the Sower's Cove. It's just outside of Jesus' hometown city of uh, Capernaum. Um, the, the lake you're looking at is the Sea of Galilee, freshwater lake, Sea of Galilee. Uh, Jesus, we read, there's crowds. Let me show you another picture um, that uh, kind of shows the same area. There are crowds, I don't know when or where, the, like, I know where this picture is taken. I don't know when it was taken, but it's a cool image. Um, there's crowds gathered to hear Jesus. This obviously wasn't taken of those crowds. We realize that, right? Okay. Okay, Jesus was before cameras. Um, but there's crowds gathered. They, they want to hear Jesus. And so we read that Jesus gets in a boat, and he kind of pushes offshore. Now, um, I want you to grab this mental image. We'll come back to this. Uh, it's actually going to play into the story he tells and kind of how he tells it. Uh, but, um, but also, so it kind of serves a, a function in the story, but also it serves a function getting in the boat and kind of pushing offshore. Off it does serve a function um, to what he's trying to do. Uh, water naturally carries sound. You've all realized this? Um, I, uh, one of my, one of my um, favorite things to do, my in-laws have a place at Big Star Lake in Baldwin. And uh, in getting up early in the morning, so the wake hour is a little bit later, and so if you get up early, the lake is quiet and everyone's kind of still in bed. And uh, there's a few fishing boats out and people are fishing. And um, by the way, this... If you don't know this, you can hear every single word that they're saying on the other side of the lake. Uh, the water carries sound. I'm not sure they know that because if they knew that, some of them have some explaining to do to their spouses. But, uh, but you, you, like water carries sound. And so Jesus pushing out, um, pushing out before you have these kinds of things or those kinds of things. Uh, Jesus pushing out into a boat to teach a large crowd. It's, it's just, it serves a function. He's teaching them allowing the natural water uh, to, carry this, to carry the sound. All right, verse 3. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. When the sun came up and the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still, other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop—160 or 30 times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Another way of saying, whoever has, whoever has ears, let them understand what I'm trying to say to you. So, pause here. Jesus tells a parable, and the parable is about a farmer who, who's sowing seed. He's throwing seed, uh, and the seed lands on four different kinds of soil. Uh, The first kind of soil is the path. The second is rocky ground, thorns. And then lastly, uh, some of the seed lands on good soil. And the seed that lands on good soil, it produces a harvest. Now, um, that's the parable. Uh, Last week, we talked about how the parables were a rabbinic teaching tool um, used by the rabbis, of which Jesus is one. Uh, Jesus is a rabbi. um, And Jesus wasn't the only rabbi to teach in parables, In fact, um, there's a lot of parables that we still have told by other rabbis of Jesus' day, in and around Jesus' day. And uh, in fact, there's other parables that, um, let me show you a book if you're interested in this. Uh, Brad Young, um, he's got a handful of books. This one is on the parables. Uh, It's called The Parables. Um, He's got another book called Jesus, the Jewish Theologian. He's got a book called Meet the Rabbis. Um, All three of those books. If you want to nerd out on this stuff, um, the, these books are the place to go. Um, but uh, what he'll describe is there, are, there is actually a template to the parables that you find among the rabbis. The rabbis actually followed a, a template and, um, and they would tell a, ver- a version of the same stories and what would separate one rabbi from another rabbi, one rabbi's teaching, their yoke from another rabbi's teaching or yoke, was kind of how the parable ended or how the parable began. Uh, so he'll note that the there was actually a common template for the four different kinds of learners. The rabbis would often talk about how there's four different kinds of learners. And the point of the parable was to ask the question, what kind of learner are you? So, um, one example he gives is he talks about how uh, there is the sponge, the funnel, the strainer, and the sieve. So, tell, like some rabbis told the parable of the fun, the sponge, the funnel, the strainer, and the sieve. And the, the sponge, as the parable goes, takes in everything. And absorbs everything. Takes in everything and keeps everything. And then you've got the funnel. And the funnel is the kind of learner who takes in everything but loses everything. So you got the sponge. you got the funnel. Then you got the strainer. The strainer takes in everything and keeps the bad. They focus on the bad. Uh, then lastly, you have the sieve. And the sieve takes in everything and keeps the good. And so the rabbis would tell this, this parable and they would say, and so what kind of learner are you? And the idea is you wanna be the sieve. You wanna be the learner who takes in everything but is able to hang on to what is good and what is true. Do You understand how the parables work? Um, so Jesus, uh, there's another rabbi, by the way, that talks about how um, some people are quick learners. Again, there's four kinds of people. Quick learners and slow doers. And then you have the, the quick learner, quick doer. So you learn it and you quickly do it. Then you have the slow learner, slow doer, and the slow learner, uh, quick doer. And again, the question then the rabbis would ask is what kind of learner are you? Now, so what's interesting is not that Jesus tells parables, he's a rabbi. We expect Jesus to tell parables. What's interesting in what Jesus is doing is Jesus is going to add color and depth to the parables in a way that the other rabbis aren't doing. Specifically, actually, let's just keep reading. um, See if you catch it. The disciples came to Jesus and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? Jesus replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Pause here. Um, This is where we spent our time last week. We started here and said, the parables to Jesus are about this idea of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Again, for some quick recap, Matthew uses the word heaven, Um, because he's writing to a Jewish audience. And the Jewish audience did not want to misuse the name of God. So the Jewish audience would sub out the name of God or even the word God for the word heaven, the place where God exists. So the same stories are told in Mark and Luke, and they're writing to a Greek audience, a Roman audience, and they don't want to get confused with, oh, this is where you go after you die. They don't want to confuse it. So they use the actual phrase, the kingdom of God. Does this make sense? Um, If you go to Israel to this day, you'll see uh, Jewish people praying and they will pray by bowing because um, they they will bow every time they come across the name of God. And so it just kind of became custom that we don't want to miss one. So they just kind of this is the form of prayer um, that the Jewish people make sense. So if you've ever seen that image, by the way, what's really interesting, total tangents that I don't have time for. Um, what's really interesting at, the, uh, at the, the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall, the only portion that's remaining of the original um, Temple Mount, uh, what's really interesting is you'll see two groups of people at Mass there. You'll see religious Jews and you'll see Christians, and both groups are praying. But the prayers look very different. Uh, if, you, um, if you go, so often we'll take, you know, you'll take people from, like me, uh, uh, Westerners from Michigan, and we'll go to pray. And what, what you see a lot of Americans doing and just Christians um, is they'll go to the wall and they'll put their hands up on the wall and they'll shut their eyes and they'll pray. Nothing wrong with that prayer. That's a, very, that's a prayer. Uh, but if you look at Jews, that's not how they're praying. How they're praying typically is with the Bible open and they're reading the Bible. And I always find that a really interesting picture of what we can learn from our Jewish friends and, and what our Jewish friends can learn from Christians. Like there's a talking to God, which we do, um, but there's also, they believe that study is the, the highest form of prayer. So they say, to, our Jewish friends will say, the best way that you can pray is you study the text because that's how God speaks to us. So of course we talk to God, but we also have to create space for God to speak to us. I find that. Um, I don't know where I am. Kingdom of heaven, he replied. Oh, da, da, da. Uh, I, don't re- I don't know where I am. Um, he replied, the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. This is, oh, this is where we spent our time last week. Uh, kingdom of heaven, God. Okay, that's right. Um, Jesus will tell us that the, re- the difference between his parables, and you see this between the, the other religious leaders and him, is Jesus, Jesus, will package his parables as a way of explaining not just how do you learn and how do you grow, but he's trying to get this massive concept through to his, to his followers called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Like This is what the kingdom of heaven is like, is how most of the parables begin. Even this parable, if you notice, he'll tell the parable, then he'll, they'll ask this question, and he comes back to the parable, and he'll say to his disciples, I'm talking about the kingdom of heaven, that's what the parables are about. This is not just how do we be good people, good students, or good citizens. This is about something bigger. Um, so, I, uh, one of the things I've, I've been I've been trying to do more intentionally lately is I've been trying to, when I have the opportunity to talk to uh, younger millennials and Gen Z, um, so I'm kind of that older millennial. Um, but when I have the opportunity to talk to younger millennials and Gen Z, I've been trying to ask, like, what are we missing in the church? I just remember being, uh, like, you know, 15, 16, 17, into my low 20s and thinking, man, the church is totally missing this and nobody sees it. And I wish somebody would have asked me. So I've been trying to ask the question, like, okay, what, what am I missing that I just don't see? I, I'm, I'm missing it because of my age, because of my demographic, because of where, like, my job. Like, what am I missing and one of the things I, I'm hearing uh, from, our, from our younger people, and again, um, I don't mean to speak on behalf of everyone, um, and this is not true for everyone, um, but what I've heard from many, at least, and in, in young people, um, correct, young adults, correct me if I'm wrong, um, but um, what I'm hearing that people are wrestling with right now is the, the fundamental question of, is the church still relevant? Is the church too flawed, like, did we mess up so bad that it's, like, not worth even trying to resurrect or, like, resuscitate, maybe is the right word. Um, is the church uh, worth investing in? Um, is, uh, and, and, and you kind of dig a little bit on that question, and um, uh, people are quick to point out, and rightly so, all of the scandals that the church has gotten into, big churches, small churches, lots of scandals, not just one denomination of churches, but kind of across denominations, uh, Churches have gotten involved in scandals. People like me have stood on stages like this and, and shared words like this, but then have done things that look very far from Jesus. And so is it even worth investing in? Is the model broken? Is, is, it, is it flawed? Um, what I'm hearing from uh, many people, and I'm sure you've heard this from others, is that uh, I want to I, I study Jesus. I'm interested in Jesus, but I don't know that the form of church is helpful to the con- I don't know that the church actually believes in Jesus. Like that's, I mean, that if you kind of dig beneath the surface just a little bit, um, I think the critique is you preach this Jesus, but then you also are really concerned about this and this and this, and you're really tied up on this and this and this. Um, and, uh, and the statistics, right? Like you know the statistics in the church and outside the church on corruption and greed and scandal and sin um, are relatively the same. Christians are doing slightly better, but not, not much better. And, uh, and because of questions like this, uh, many young people are, um, and this is statistics now, but many young people are statistically leaving the church. And there used to be a narrative that would say, well, that's common. That happens, right? Young people leave church. People leave church, and, but they'll come back eventually, uh, statistically, that's been true for decades now. People, people grew up in the church. They reached their teens. They got to kind of explore faith on their own and come to their own sense of what is truth. And, but eventually they come back. Um, but the thing that drove people back, we're not seeing happening right now, truthfully. Um, often the thing was uh, you leave and you maybe go off to college or work and you kind of do that for a little bit. And then uh, as you're off kind of doing your thing and kind of exploring life, you then uh, get married and have some kids. And the question then for many young people is, oh, we want to raise our, like, how do we raise these kids to have the same values that we got, get, were giving growing up? And so uh, out of that, then a lot of people would find their way back into church because of baptism and um, they want to become part of this, this thing that was passed down. However, uh, what, what we're now seeing, that was true for, for, for the last several decades, right? So many of you probably, you had a season where you're like, I want nothing to do with church, but you found your way back. Um, but uh, what we're seeing now is that a lot of our younger generation is saying they're, they're leaving, and then um, the, the time between getting married and having kids is kind of growing. And in that time, um, there's, become, there's new patterns that are developing, and they're not finding their way back into church and uh, in fact, uh, Harvard about a decade ago. So it's a bit dated, but Harvard came out with a study that they called "How We Gather." How we gather, and uh, it's worth looking into if you're interested in like sociological patterns. But uh, in uh, how they get ga- how we gather, they essentially talk about how a whole generation now is saying, "Okay, we want community. We want to belong somewhere. We want actually some spiritual depth," and they're finding it in different places: dinner parties. Um, there's a whole uh, section on CrossFit gyms. Like CrossFit gyms have met the need that a lot of the churches uh, once met. Um, third spaces, they call them. And uh, and maybe you're thinking, yeah, well, that's you don't need to go to church to be the church. And I, at some level, would agree. However, um, what concerns me in this, if I'm just fully transparent, what concerns me in, uh, in kind of how people are leaving is that we... Um, are filling the void that the church wants to once filled, but I'm not certain it's being filled with Jesus by and large, and I'm not certain it's being filled with true community. Um, often it's filled with community that looks a lot like me and likes the things I'm into, but not the person who's going to force me to understand what the united body of Christ looks like in its diversity. Right? Like does that makes sense. Um, And so then what ends up filling that void is technology, which is probably the God of our, the the lower G God of our age. And I'm not completely surprised that people are lonelier and sadder than they've ever been. And so um, I would say, uh, I say all that to say this. I think at some level, the church is in a state of emergency in our nation, not globally. Global church is doing just fine. Um, but in our nation, I might argue that we are in the state of emergency. And, uh, and so um, now in two weeks, I'll, I want to spend a, that in like two weeks, I want to talk about what's our path forward in this. Um, but at some level, I think uh, what we're doing here, I hope we see it matters. that Our mission to help people find their way back to God, people are lonelier than ever and need Jesus more than ever. I'm deeply convinced of that. Um, this matters. And while it's true that Christians have done some of the ugliest things in our world in the name of Jesus, we have to own that, it's true. It's also true that Christians have done some of the most beautiful and compelling things in the name of Jesus that are existing in our world. Both are true. Um, And what we are part of Jesus refers to is not just going to church or even being the church. Jesus calls this the kingdom of God. We are advancing this mission that Jesus called the kingdom of God. Paul refers to this as the new humanity. For Paul, it's, it's, it's a whole new way to be human. It's a whole new worldview that's bursting on the scene in the midst of this worldview. Um, and, I, and what you'll see in the early church and what we see is that the, the early church understood the weight of that. It wasn't just enough to rant against the Romans and their horrible worldview that allowed, it, that allowed slavery and the subjugation of women and all of this. Like They wanted to create a whole new worldview. They understood they had a whole new worldview that burst on the scene um, through Jesus and they were embodying that worldview. And so, uh, again, Paul calls it the new humanity. And I think that, that I find to be compelling language. And I think... One of the things we have to take seriously in our modern era, in this potential state of emergency, is not just, or maybe not, how do we jam Jesus into the kingdoms of our world, but how do we live peacefully in the kingdoms of our world? We're called to do that while building Jesus' kingdom, which operates by a radical different, radically different rule book. Um, in, in fact. Um, I love how Paul, when he's addressing the churches, Paul, in his book to the Ephesians, his letter to the Ephesians, he starts his letter by saying, to the saints at Ephesus in Christ Jesus. You see what he does there? It's kind of brilliant. Um, To the saints at Ephesus in Jesus. Your permanent home is in Christ. You're at Ephesus. Uh, I, I would think of it like, to my friends, to the saints at Byron Center in Christ Jesus. Right At Michigan, state of Michigan, in Christ Jesus. At the United States, but in Jesus. Our permanent residence, his kingdom is a kingdom that will never end. His worldview is the worldview that will will expose all the, the small and petty and false worldviews. His way is the way that if the church embodies it, if we live it, will overturn all the false narratives. Does this make sense? I'm preaching a little bit. Can I get a witness? Uh, all right. <laughs> anyway, okay, let's get back into the parable. I told Craig before the service that I, didn't, I got through like half my sermon last week, so I'm going to try to jam that sermon into this sermon. We'll see how that works. If that was that. Um, I just think the kingdom of God is so urgently important that we wrestle with this concept. But back to the story. Verse 10, because there's something going on in what Jesus says, by the way, that's kind of puzzling. We read it last week, but we skipped over it. I think you probably noticed it, though. Catch what's puzzling. The disciples came to Jesus and asked, Jesus, why do you speak to the par- people in parables? It's a sincere and honest question. He replied, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even that will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Let's pause here. What? What? Jesus essentially says, why, why do you speak in parables? And his answer is, I'm trying to make it fuzzier. I'm trying to make it less clear. And we hear that and say, that's not good teaching. Why would you do that, Jesus? Jesus seems to be saying, the reason I'm teaching in parables is so that some understand, but some don't understand. He then quotes Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet. Though seeing, they don't see. Though hearing, they don't hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, for they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and they would turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear." For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but didn't see it. And to hear what you hear, but didn't hear it. Now, it's kind of odd talk, isn't it? Let's just name that. Like, is this problematic to anyone else? Like, this is, uh, I'm teaching this because some people, they, like, their hearts aren't ready for this. Their hearts aren't, I'm teaching this in parables so that you kind of understand what I'm talking about, but they don't understand what I'm talking Why would Jesus teach in parables to make things less clear to a group of people who are looking for answers and things? Maybe even hope. Why less clear? Okay, hold that question. Let's wrap up his explanation. 18. Uh, Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is a seed that was sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of this world, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. So why does Jesus say, I tell parables so that they won't understand them? I mean, that's what he's, why? If this idea of the kingdom of heaven is so revolutionary that it'll change the face of the world, why hide it in the stories that essentially function like riddles? Why hide it in a parable? Okay, before we go there, if we have time to go there, um, let me take you deeper into the weeds, uh, into the parables. Jesus is, um, this is the part, by the way, that I was trying to wrestle with, how do I do justice to this? Because it's such a massive idea and it's such a nerdy, geeky, technical idea. But it's underlying everything Jesus is doing in the parables. And once you see it, I promise you, if you can follow along and if I can communicate this clearly enough, once you see it, it will change how you read all of the parables. And in fact, it'll change how you read a lot of what Jesus does and what Jesus says. And Jesus is doing things behind these simple stories that are brilliant. Now, let me start like this. Jesus was a Jewish theologian. He was a Jewish rabbi. He taught like a Jewish rabbi. He, he uh, used parables like a Jewish Jesus is a Jewish rabbi teaching. um, His 12 disciples are Jewish disciples, they're students. And the Jewish rabbis had a four-part thing they were doing, a teaching mechanism, a four-part interpretation mechanism that they were doing, especially with the parables. The four-part interpretation mechanism that they're doing uh, often goes by the acronym PARDES, PARDES, if you're taking notes, write down the word pardes and the, the weird punctuation or the weird, that's, not, that's intentional. Um, pardes, the P of pardes, okay, we're in school now. The P of pardes is the first level of Jewish interpretation known as pashat, pashat. Pashat means surface or straight. The pashat interpretation is the literal or the direct interpretation The direct meaning of the text. It's what you hear when you sit down with the passage. It's what you immediately... So if you read the story, you're like, it feels pretty straightforward, Jesus. I don't understand how this is... Like, I don't have a PhD in this stuff. I didn't go to classes in this stuff. But I feel like I kind of understand what you're saying. The Peshat interpretation was the literal meaning of a text. Now, in case you're thinking that's not good, it is good. You have to start here. It you have to start with, okay, I'm gonna read the text, and Jesus, what does this text mean? It's the straightforward, literal reading of the text. What does the text mean? Often, the cultural and contextual work we do on a Sunday is pashah. Now, I know for us, um, because we didn't, Grow up in the culture, all sorts of ahas and like, whoa, I never saw that before go off in our heads. Um, and it doesn't feel like it's a straightforward meaning, but they grew up in the culture. For them, the culture stuff, they already knew. They already understood the culture stuff. We have to do the work a little bit, but the straight reading of a text, um, a lot of times that cultural and historical stuff is, they would have just known this. So I show you the picture of where Jesus is teaching. Remember the picture of where he's in the boat? Um, that's this right here. Notice what's in the background. Farmland. In fact, uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8, God says to Moses, I'm going to give you this land known as a promised land, and it's good land. It's really good land. In this land, there are seven species, and these seven species are going to be coveted around the world. The seven species wheat, barley, grapes, figs, pomegranates, olives, and dates. The Galilee was known for its ability to produce a crop that went out to the world. When Jesus tells a story about a farmer sowing seed, his audience, by and large, most likely, most of them are probably farmers. Right? So they understood the picture. They understood, of course, like this is what we do. We sow seed. We understand how seed works. They also understood how the paths, how the soil works that Jesus is talking about. Right? The the hard path. We think farmland. We think massive fields. But farmland often was maybe a third of an acre that was your family plot to farm. And the way you would sow the seed was you would walk around the outside of the, of the farm. Um, you'd usually build a little brick wall and then you'd walk along the brick wall and you'd throw seed into the center. And so the, the part around would become the path. And if seed fell onto the path, which inevitably, inevitably would do, it's not gonna grow because you've walked that path multiple times checking on your produce. So they understood that. They understand what the path looks like. They understand what the rocky ground looks like. Uh, You may may or may not know this, but um, the the land of the Galilee is volcanically active. And because of that, you have this black basalt rock, and the ground is really rocky. You dig an inch, and you're going to pull up a rock. And so in order to farm the land, you actually have to remove the rocks. It takes a tremendous amount of work. Um, You've heard of the Golan Heights. The Golan Heights is great farmland, but it ha- we haven't actually done the work yet to remove the rocks, and so you'll see cows grazing in the Golan Heights, but you don't see a lot of farms in the Golan Heights yet. Give it twenty years; I almost I almost guarantee you, in twenty years, farmers are going to reclaim the Golan Heights. But right now, you just don't see it because it's rocks. Um, and, and so you got the rocky ground. They would have known the picture. The thorns. Israel's got a, a number of different kinds of thorns. And there is one in particular known as serim. And it's an invasive species. And when a tourist like uh, our group comes walking through a field and we brush up against a serim and it sticks in our pant leg. And then we do this as we're walking through someone's wheat field. We're spreading serim into that man's wheat field. And now they've got, they have got thorns in their wheat field. And this happens all of the time. It's an invasive species. And so you kind of learn to try to work with it, but by and large, it can choke out your plants. It'll overgrow. They understand that metaphor. And lastly, um, they know good soil. Of course they know good soil. God promised them this land. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, He writes that the land is everywhere so rich in soil and pasturage and produces such a variety of trees that even the most indolent are tempted by these facilities to devote themselves to agriculture. There is not a parcel of wasteland. Um, A a Roman scholar writing about the agriculture named Marcus Terentius Varro, he suggested that in the Roman Empire, the average yield of a good yield was 10 to 15-fold. But then he goes on to talk about this region of Gadara, the southern portion of the Sea of Galilee. And he said in the the Gadara region, you can get 100-fold. That's the number he uses. It also happens to be the number Jesus uses. So Jesus is teaching a story to farmers, and he talks about 100-fold, 100-fold yield of a good crop. talks about the four different kinds of terrain. Would they have understood it? yes. So when Jesus is saying, I've come to give them stuff that they're not going to all understand, he is not talking at the Peshat level. They would have understood this. It's, and by the way, is it good? I know by me saying, like, it's one way to read. And, and I, actually, most Christians, this is the only layer in, that we actually approach the Scripture at. It's the only one. And I don't mean that as a negative thing. Christ, the, this is, you can learn a lot from a Peshat read of the text. I think you can go deeper. But you can learn a lot from the Peshat layer of the text. For instance, um, and you can be surprised by it. Uh, for instance, you may have, just, just like listening to the, t- the passage, recognized that this is not the parable of the sower, as we might often think of it. It's actually the parable of the soils, right? The translators put the wrong title in. It's not a great title because the sower doesn't change. And the seed the sower's sowing is always good seed, What allows the seed to grow is the soil it's thrown on. And that can be like, if that's the first time you're hearing this and it's the first time, like that's revolutionary. So you're telling me God is always good? Yes. You're telling me the scripture is always helpful and useful and can change lives? Yes. Well, then why doesn't it always change lives? Well, that has to do with the soil of your heart. That's a pretty eye opening moment, like when that first clicks. But shot readings can actually, like, they can be life changing, absolutely. But there's a deeper layer. Um, there's a deeper layer. Uh, the R, I do keep watching my watch, I, I'm aware, I'm sorry. Um, the R, by the way, I've learned that when I do this, I watch, like, at least a third of you do this. So I try not to do this in a way that you can see, but um, the R. Uh, is a word, if you've been around us for a while, you've heard this word. Uh, it's the word ramez. Let me hear you say ramez. That's a word worth knowing. Ramez means hints. It means hints. Um, again, we talked about this before, but let me go over it quickly for those who are not with us or just need some help. You got to repeat things, right? You got to repeat things. Uh, a ramez is when a, uh, a teacher like Jesus, he's the best at this. Jesus does this one all the time. When they will quote an Old Testament passage or allude to an Old Testament passage as a way of making a point. Only they won't tell you they're quoting an Old Testament passage and they won't tell you what they're alluding to. Your job is to figure out the context of that Old Testament passage, what was said, why it was said. And if you understand that, then you will understand what the rabbi is trying to teach you about what he's saying. Jesus does this all the time. Uh, In fact, uh, Jewish rabbis will point out, my my friend who studied in uh, Jerusalem University will talk about how in their class, they'll say Jesus was maybe the best Ramez teacher ever. And in his encounter, they don't believe in Jesus as Messiah, but in the encounter that Jesus has with Zacchaeus, they will point at that as the smartest Most brilliant remez that's ever been done. Jesus, in a single two or three words, calls out the religious system. He affirms the oppressed. Jesus, in a couple of words, flips the whole thing in one little story. I'm not going to tell you the story. you got to look it up. Um, A remez. Uh, You have to do the work with a remez. you got to know the text enough. Now, the beauty of our modern era is we have the internet. You can do this work without having to memorize the whole thing, but you still have to want it a little bit. And, uh, and so, for instance, when Jesus' disciples ask him, tell us what the parable means, and he answers them, here's what it means. It might look like Jesus is giving us Peshat, right? It's the literal meaning of this is what he's trying to say. But Jesus, in this little section on, that we look at and say, well, that's pretty direct, is actually cluing us into a number of the remezes that he's doing. He's giving just enough detail that now his disciples can say, I know what you're saying, Jesus. We don't have time to look at them all. Let me just tell you them. Uh, You can do the work. Uh, The path, um, he's referencing Hosea 10. Look at Hosea 10, you'll understand what he's talking about with Satan snatching it away. Uh, The rocky soil, Isaiah chapter 5. The thorns, Jeremiah chapter 4. Again, we don't have time, but there's a deeper meaning. If you know the passages, then you have an understanding of, oh, here's what Jesus is doing. Does this make some sense? Okay, let me show you one just so you have, a, you have some sense. Uh, Jesus talks about good soil. So there's four soils, there's these three, and then there's the good soil. One of the ways to find the ramez is you ask yourself the question is there anything odd in the passage? Is there anything weird? Is, does anything read clunky? It's often a way like, you're, okay, that, like, I smell a ramez coming, I, I think he's doing it. Um, is there anything odd? And if you look at what Jesus talks about when he talks about the good soil, is there anything odd? And the answer is yeah, right? Jesus says, for instance, he gives us three numbers. It's gonna produce 160, and 30. Why those numbers? Some of you are thinking, like, wait a minute, those aren't divisible by two. Like, like right? Like, why 160, 30? And why in reverse order? Right? That's not how we talk. We would say it's going to produce 30, 60, even hundred-fold. But in fact, some translators, as they're translating the Bible, will say, "This doesn't make any sense. That's not how people talk." And so they flip the order, totally missing what Jesus is doing, I think, missing what Jesus is doing here. Why start with the? Word, the letter? Why start with the number 100 here? Did you know that a hundredfold only comes up in the Bible one other place, the entire Bible? Old Testament? You know the place? Ah, they hear, but they don't understand. Like this is, I I wouldn't either. I wouldn't either if I didn't have the tools. But this is what Jesus is saying. Some are gonna get this. Um, One other place. Here's the place. Genesis 26. Story of a man named Isaac. Isaac is the son of a man named Abraham. Abraham has been told to go to the land and stay in the land, the promised land. Trust God it's all gonna work out. But Abraham kind of ends his life with a massive screw-up, right? He, he goes to Egypt, the empire, and he tries to like, pawn off his wife to curry favor with the Egyptians. And if you read Genesis 26, it's essentially the story of Abraham in reverse. The story starts with Isaac going to Egypt and wanting to gain political favor. Of course, that's what you do. Where does power come from? They built the pyramids. If you want to make a dent in the world, you get on the Egyptians' good side. So Isaac begins the story going to the Pharaoh, going to Egypt, trying to win political favor with the Egyptians. But then he has a change of heart, and he goes back to the land of Israel, the the promised land in the Scriptures, and he does two things that tell us that he trusts the plan of God. God promised Abraham If you stay in the land, I'll make you a nation and I'll make your descendants great. And you have two things that happen that tell you Isaac finally commits himself to the mission of God. He digs wells and he plants crops. And we read this line, Genesis 26, 12. Isaac planted crops in that land and the same year reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. Do you see how these weeks... Kind of build on each other. Last week I said, I showed you the passage of Abraham and God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you become a blessing. But you gotta, like, you, you got to stay here. Stay in the land. Be a blessing to the world. Isaac commits to the plan. What's the remes, Jesus? What are you telling us? Perhaps, I think, I am convinced. I believe that what Jesus is trying to tell his disciples Is that Isaac is the example? He's the example. He trusts God's mission. He stops chasing after. I know the allure, the allure of bailing out because it's hard. Life is hard for those Jewish people in first century Israel. I know it's hard, but don't bail. I know the allure of Herod's wealth is high, it's not the kingdom. I know the power that Caesar promises you. If you just bow down to Caesar, he'll give you all the power. I know it's high. It's not the mission of God. If you trust the mission, like Isaac trusts the mission, God's mission will work. That's the good soil. Now, can you get that without, can you just like read it on the first read and understand all that without the work? No, of course not. You have to do the work. It's, it's truth in Ramez. Ah, okay. Um, I have to go quick on the next two. I'm just giving you them quick. Uh, the next one is known as dirash. It's uh, it's where we get the word midrash. It's to inquire or to seek. Um, it is, dirash is truth that's hidden in a story. Um, and so you, by the way, if you're interested in, I was gonna give you a couple, but um, uh, if, midrash, just Google mid, like Jewish midrash. You'll find some really fun stories of Jewish Midrash. Um, while the world during COVID was learning how to make sourdough bread, I was studying Jewish Midrash. Um, I also learned how to make sourdough bread. But uh, it, I mean, it's, it's, fun. it's fun stuff. In fact, um, there's, a, there's a Midrash about this passage. What a Midrash is trying to do is tell you a weird story to highlight a weird detail in the passage that you may have missed. And so the story exists not to try to teach you anything, but to point out a detail that you missed. And the Midrash on this story will say, "Hey, there's there's seven. Catch this. There are seven parables about the kingdom of God. What else has seven? Days of creation. And the Midrash tries to show you that the seven parables are linked to the seven days of creation. We don't have time to go there. All right. Last one, sowed. Sowed the s means secret. Um, this is a level of mystery that cannot be taught. It can only be revealed by God. Um, I, I can't tell you what the sode of a passage is because only God can tell you the sode. Now, um, at some level, I think you know this one. You've, you've experienced this one. Uh, you've had a moment where a, um, uh, you've read a passage again and again and again, and finally you read a passage, and all of a sudden you see something you've never seen before, and it's like, that's what I needed to hear today. That's so, God gave you that. Thank God, praise God. Um, after a, uh, uh, this happens all the time actually, after a sermon, somebody, some of you sometimes, will come forward and you'll say something along the lines of, Pastor Tim, thank you so much about saying this, for saying this. I needed to hear that today. And I'm aware that I never said that. And in fact, uh, for years, I would, actually, uh, I would actually correct people and say, I'm glad God gave you that, but I never said that. Um, but i 'm trying to get better to say i, I didn 't say that, but God did say that that's sowed it 's when the spirit does the work. I think one of the reasons Jesus and you can look at this passage I think one of the reasons Jesus chooses the twelve disciples he chooses is because Jesus sees that in these kids God has given them sowed. By the way, when uh, peter is uh, they 're up at Caesarea Philippi, and Peter said, he says, who do, my, who do they think I am and you know some say a prophet. And some say, you're John the Baptist. He's just been beheaded, but he's come back. Well, who do you say that I am, Peter? And when Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, do you remember how Jesus responds? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for man didn't reveal this to you. This was a gift of God. That's sowed. God gave you that. Parables are often working at all four levels. And I think the disciples, the reason they get it is they see things that others are missing. God is giving them things that others are missing. Back to our question, why does Jesus tell parables? Why does he say he tells parables so that people won't understand? Why? So they won't understand. I think what Jesus understands is there are some people who don't want to ever do the work. They just want to hear, I love how the early Christians talked about this. They said, there are some people who just want you to tell them what they already believe. The language they use is, they just want what their itching ears want to hear. Some people, if you give them the truth, Jesus says, it's like, it's like pearls that you throw before pigs. They'll trample the truth underfoot and then they'll turn on you. And what Jesus seems to understand, what Jesus understands and seems to be trying to teach us is there is some people that don't want the truth. And the truth, you have to work for it. It's possible you quote Jesus and you, you can say, like, I, you know, I'm an expert on what Jesus said and I got all these verses memorized, but you actually haven't done the work to say, okay, Jesus, what are you really trying to teach here? What are you really trying to show? Not just to rubber stamp my agenda or rub, like, make me feel good about what I believe, but like, Jesus, like, what is the truth I need to be convicted of? I am so convicted by this. I keep learning this stuff and I'm like, I... Am, I Missed that teaching my whole life, and then I saw it, and I can't believe I, I missed it. To be open to changing. I think what Jesus sees in these kids, these disciples, is that these kids are going to be able to hear his teachings and actually say, I, God gave me a fresh word. You'll see this in Peter. When Peter, Jesus ascends to heaven, and Peter's out, and he has a vision from, about. remember the Cornelius vision of the animals coming down? And all of a sudden, he undoes 2,000 years of Jewish history because he heard a voice from God. And we're grateful because of that decision. All right. Um, well, kingdom of heaven starts here. We'll, we'll wrap there. Starts in our hearts. Starts here. I think the church is in a state of emergency. I think the secret moving forward is, has something to do with the kingdom of God. I want to build my best case. I'm trying to build it slowly, Uh, I'm trying to build it intentionally, but I want to build my best case for where do we go from here. Uh, I want to try to build that with you all in a couple weeks. Um, And so um, we'll keep building a case until that point, but uh, it it starts here in the soil of my heart. What am I doing? Am I open to receive the seed? Has my heart become hard? Has my heart become rocky? Is there too much stuff going on that I don't have time? Um, What's going on here? Lord, we love you. We thank you in um, Jesus. Um, we, um, would you keep all of our hearts soft, Lord? We wanna be the kinds of people who have strong convictions but soft hearts. Uh, Lord, we wanna be the kinds of people who are courageous to, uh, to live passionately for you, but Lord, we wanna do it how you told us to do it. And so Lord, would we be, would we be open to, um, to surrendering all of our hearts to you and so, Lord, as we'll sing in just a moment, here are our hearts. Uh, Lord, would you take them? We pray this,
0: Jesus, in your name. And everybody said, "And you may please stand." As we've said so many times before, we just want to say thanks for spending a little time with us. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, visit us on the web at www.southharbor.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sundays at 10 a.m., you can find our services streamed live on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor Church and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.